the diversity really that we're talking about is one that is of culture and of religious uh, belonging. Let's talk first about the scale of the Lebanese communities. Uh, we, in Lebanon, we have some sort of system of clientelism, if you will. So every community has its political chief. And if you have allegiance to a political party, usually you get services or you get more perks. But then if you don't have these close relationships, then you have a different kind of dynamic in which you make things happen for you. That was Lynn, a doctoral candidate here at the University of Georgia. She's a researcher of the Pan-Arab Corridor in the Bakaw Valley of Lebanon. <coughs> Thank you. Um, don't forget to mention, she's also a co-founder of the Les Collective. You know, that kind of makes her our boss. Excuse me, Mr. Khan. I was speaking. I'm just trying to help. I was speaking. As I was saying, while global disparities vary depending on your geographic positioning in the world, there are some universal similarities. By the early 19th century, a vast majority of the world's nations had been colonized by European powers. The empire-building and resource-driven exploitation of states and their populations continue to influence the world today from language, religion... Inequity can be economic, racial, spatial, religious, and even caste-oriented. This concept is a reality that we live with in parallel to our normal world. To imagine a society without any inequity, some might say it can get dangerously close to being a utopian dreamer. Welcome fellow urban enthusiasts. I am Sava Sarkil and with me is... Brett Kahn. And as you know by now, we are both second year urban planning grad students at the University of Georgia. And today's episode is titled Global Inequity, part two of our two-part series on urban inequity. After two millennia, India's untouchables have had enough. It's the 21st century superpower they live in that's out of touch, they say. They reject the iniquities of caste. India is known as a secular nation. On paper, but in practice, the caste system instigates national disparities. This system, some 3,000 years old, has hierarchical segregation of Hindus in different classes based on karma, meaning work, and dharma, meaning duty. The upper classes include Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and the lower class consists of Shudras and Dalits. The lower classes are made of occupations that were namely laborers, street sweepers, and sewage and latrine cleaners. This system was developed under the concept of Brahmanism, which was essentially a method of governance of society in pre-colonial India. Social identities were constantly malleable, slaves and menials and merchants became kings. Farmers became soldiers and soldiers became farmers. One social identity could be changed as easily as moving from one village to another. There is little evidence of systematic and widespread caste oppression. This concept was institutionalized and made systematic for mass oppression by the English colonizers. The English colonizers, true to their character, found the potential of oppression under this caste system. Colonial India was divided by the Britishers into rigid distinct classes, where unlike the pre-colonial era, your caste system became your faith and identity for generations to come. Concepts of untouchability for the lower classes like Dalits and massive suppression of all lower classes were reinforced to fulfill the English goal of convenient ruling. For over 200 years, the English oppressed the lower class Dalits and left them suppressed and underdeveloped. Dalits of colonial India found themselves deprived of education, healthcare, housing, and basic civil rights. Remember in the beginning, Subba mentioned something about there being similar global disparities? Well, in Lebanon, Lynn has bore witness to a few. 
yeah, we do have a lot of disparity. If you are not a citizen and you usually work a low-paying job, usually you have you typically own no land, your living conditions are hard or have very little flexibility. So these are the dynamics at a first glance. Though all Indians suffered under colonial rule, the upper classes had many advantages and privileges. When India fought back for their independence in 1945 and drafted the secular constitution, this oppressive caste system was banned. Additionally, the constitution introduced reservations in many fields, including jobs, education, and civil services. Under the right of equality, Article 15, the constitution of India states that no state shall discriminate between citizens based on their religion, race, caste, sex, place of birth, or any of them. But conditions of Dalits remain unchanged. Through decades of work, the caste system has in fact very well diminished from the major cities. Inter-caste marriages are common. In these urban spaces, workspaces are more diverse. Dalits have contributed to literature and research in many different fields. But in rural India and some cities, the remnants of colonial India are still being left. Lynching, oppression, sexual and physical assaults, and even geographical and infrastructural isolation is a reality for many Dalits in India today. According to national crime statistics, the crime rates against Dalits have increased up by 25%. And in 2016, nearly 41,000 criminal cases were reported against the community. The survey Social Attitude Research in India, conducted in 2018, explored the reality of discrimination. This survey was focused on the practice of untouchability, an act of physical and social discrimination against Dalits by the so-called upper classes. 50% of respondents in urban Rajasthan, a northwestern state, admitted to practicing untouchability, as did 48% of respondents in Uttar Pradesh, and even 39% of Delhi, the capital of India, practice this medieval concept. On October 22 of 2018, in a southern state of India, a 22-year-old man barged into the house of a Dalit family and beheaded a 14-year-old girl as her mother watched in horror. He then proceeded to carry her head and tossed it on the side of the road. This crime was reportedly conducted because the man targeted the young girl due to her caste. In the same year, in a northwestern state known as Gujarat, a man was beaten to death for owning a horse. According to the oblivious adaption of traditions, Dalits aren't supposed to own horses. An age-old custom called Devadasi has also contributed to the wrath of Dalits. Dalit females to be precise. Devadasi means servant, servants to the gods. They are also documented to have known 64 types of arts. This concept, however, is used to exploit Dalit females. Devadasis today have been reduced to sex slaves. Dalits due to systematic oppression are financially and socially disadvantaged, and they tend to give up their daughters to the system in order to be better accepted. It's been more than 20 years since the ban of Devadasi. But according to the National Human Rights Commission in 2013, there were as many as 450,000 Devadasis in India, mostly comprising of Dalit females. These are few of the many examples of systematic oppressions of Dalits. Though the Constitution of India and the Indian Penal Code has taken significant steps to be inclusive and secular, the social systems at the local level are orthodox and discriminating. Geographical and infrastructural isolation is recognized as one of the driving factors by many Indian urban planners that keeps this oppressive system relevant. Unfortunately, the discussion around caste and planning or caste and design is majorly limited to literature. With the current political environment of the country, the focus of planning in India is geared towards making architectural statements. The golden objectives of reinforcing disadvantaged communities have been widely missed.
On to this story now, Statistician General Risenga Malulege recently released the Inequality Trends Report for South Africa, which found that the country remains one of the most unequal nations in the world. South Africa has been dubbed the world's most unequal country. The disparity between the wealthy and poor in South Africa is mirrored at a national level. While the poorest of South Africa can be considered akin to the poor of Burundi, a country in East Africa whose GDP stands at about 3 billion USD, and their wealthy counterparts are regarded as having wealth in league with the wealthiest of Belgium, with a GDP around 540 billion USD. So what contributed to this chasm of disparity that we now see? If you were to Google map Bloversrand and the Kaya Island in Johannesburg, South Africa, you would find a visual representation of the disparity. Bloversrand is a middle-class community with green yards, trees, pools and fences. To the east of this is an informal settlement by the name of Kaya Sands where the homes in the area are built from reused materials such as wood and plastic, and most heating, lighting or cooking is conducted via open flame. Fires pose a significant risk to the community. This is one of many ways that the impact of apartheid continues to influence the shape of South Africa even today. According to a 2018 World Bank report on poverty and inequality, disadvantaged South Africans hold fewer assets, have fewer skills, earn lower wages, and are still more likely to be unemployed. Meanwhile, the elite, notably a white minority, continuously thrive. In 1930, the Native Lands Act saw to the official segregation of non-white South Africans from city living, effectively forcing all other races to the countryside, and what would later be developed as township to house any black or non-white residents. The act also limited black ownership to a mere 7% of the land, where 90% of the land was left to the white minority. Although the act is regarded as the first official legislation, that made it legal to systematically segregate the nation. The actual practice of doing so dates back to South African colonial era. British colonies used to resettle black residents under the pretense of disease epidemics. Since cities were now designated for whites only, many townships were created in order to house the non-whites labor force. The enactment of apartheid extended beyond political constructs and found its way into architecture and planning. Monumental structures like the Voortrekker Monument in Pretoria validated white supremacy, while multiracial settlements were completely uprooted and destroyed, forcing all non-white members of the community to move to distant townships through acts such as the 1950 Group Areas Act. In District 6 near Cape Town, 60,000 residents were forcibly moved between 1968 and 1982 in response to the same act. Architectural movements such as Lee Corbusier's concept of temporary workforce housing helped to inspire white South Africans in their vision of the positive and controlled movement of the black workforce. Ebenezer Howard's Garden City's concept of neatly drawn boulevards and gridded neighborhoods can be seen implemented in township designs, a series of cookie-cutter matchbox homes were laid out in these township communities. Global colonial methods of control and domination take many forms. Lebanon has a lot of ties um, uh, both historic and present. For example, we do have a colonial history. We did have uh, French colonial rule for a long time. Before that, we had the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire is, I think, one of the most formative centuries that really created the fragmented landscape of Lebanon. And then once we have these powers that are exterior to Lebanon who really shaped it for what it is, you kind of start to get the feeling that the country does not really belong to its people. It belongs to something else or somebody else or uh, other countries, really, or other dynamics. In some cases, we do see very strong strategic points, military, transportation, and commercial. But we have yet to find a way 
to marry these interests in an equitable fashion uh, and have the revenue go back to the people. I think it's just we need to refresh the way we see or we make our leadership and on the social level. Now, on the land development or urban level, we do have a great inequity between cities and rural areas. So right now, when if you live in a city, you're king-ish. And if you are not in a city, you're, you should be elsewhere. You strive to move elsewhere, to a different city, to a different country, to a different wherever. So I think the idea of bringing back, developing that sense of place, like if you live in the Beka Valley, which is a rural area, or peri-rural and sometimes urban area, it's developing. So how do we get people who are growing up there to really take ownership of that place that makes them and use it in a way that develop it? While the methods used in Lebanon differ, the resulting urban to rural digressions share similarities with the implementation of townships in South Africa. Townships were typically highly controlled and laid far from urban centers in white cities. In cases where this was done, a vast space of uninhabited land served as a barrier between township and city. Transportation was limited and badly supported by state-owned buses and trains. Residents had limited access to commercial goods and would often have to shop at faraway locations, or if available, Indian-owned or white-owned shops around the townships. Leisure activities were nearly nullified. No cultural facilities existed outside of what could be created within church homes. Public space was non-existent. Unoccupied space had no associated role or land use. These spaces were usually strewn with trash and footpaths for travel not the ideal environment for civil discourse. The little of civil discourse to be had had to be done in people's yard, churches, or marketplaces. Persecuted South Africans did not allow this restricted form of living to keep them from creating their own ways to cope and carve out some meaningful form of existence. Private minibuses known as black taxis filled the gaps in transportation services left by the state. Illegal bars and spaza shops or convenience stores began being run out of homes. South Africans began developing some sense of community amid their oppression. Akin to how redlining caused resonating racial and economic disparities across the U.S., the policy and township implementation in South Africa has had a similar rippling effect and it shows in today's society. The unequal incomes remain consistently racialized, gendered, and spatial. The top 1% take home nearly 20% of all income in the country, while the top 10% take home an even greater 65. The remaining 90% of South African earners have to share 35% of country's total income. To add insult to the injury in post-apartheid, white South Africans are more likely to find work than their black counterparts. Now stay with me because the numbers get a bit more discouraging. During the same time period, the country's bottom 10% of earners saw a continual shrinkage in their earnings of about a quarter a year. The median incomes also dwindled by 15%. That's in sharp contrast with the top 2% of earners, who saw an increase of 15%. And the top 1% saw a huge leap in earnings by about 48%. Spatial inequality also plays a heavy role in South African inequity. Many black neighborhoods lie on the periphery or far from urban centers due to colonial and apartheid practices. The reason why more than half of these households are still unable to access infrastructural needs such as piped water are rooted in racially oppressive system created to benefit white supremacy. 55% of blacks live in townships and more than 40% are working class adults. The growth in black middle class has seen the largest shift in demographics of blacks moving to formerly all-white suburbs. Yet, 81% of township residents plan to continue living there. Many for strong bonds of communities that have been built and some simply because they can't afford to do so. Some of the townships have begun to mirror actual towns and develop their own hubs of commerce and political power. South Africa still suffers from an inadequate supply of housing, which informal housing has developed in response to. 
usually on the outskirts of existing townships. The substandard living and practices non-white residents were subjected to has had a continual impact and lays the foundation for inequity to be housed in the existing communities today. India, Lebanon, South Africa, and America, all four of these countries varying in land size, population, and culture, share the common thread of inequity. One of the methods to decrease these gaps of inequity is recognizing the disparities that exist, especially discussing topics like urban inequity in academic spaces. Lynn shares some insights about how one can attempt to structure academia in order to be informationally diverse and cognizant of past and current political issues that hold bearing in planning practice and ethics. So this question, I'm going to try to curb my passion a little bit while I answer it, because I do have a lot of strong feelings and strong thoughts about it. Well, I don't know how strong my thoughts are, but my feelings are very strong. The first thing that I think is absolutely important is this huge boom of information that's available on the internet. And it's not always through the typical channels of peer-reviewed journals or magazine articles that are you know, really top-notch or very competitive to get uh, published. But we have all these podcasts, like Your Fine Podcasts, and videos and TED Talks and a lot of other sources. And these are important because we need to diversify the voices that we are bringing to the academic table. Like, I don't want to teach the same people we've been teaching since the 60s. I want to hear more, even if the other people don't speak the same language or speak on the same platform or follow really the line of thought in academia which we teach. We have to think outside of the box because really we've come to a point where we have this abundance of information and no good system to organize that information. So how do we do that? And then this is an opportunity with the internet. We have to stop thinking about getting information and teaching them in class and thinking about developing structures in which we think about the information. How do you, how do you learn new things? Um, and then, so in my role as an instructor at the University of Georgia, I really try very hard to keep things interesting and you know, bring voices in. And, and, and then these voices are not always from the best urban planning uh, firms, although I do incorporate that, or not, they're, they're not, you know, how do you say, mainstream successful. No, we have other kinds of success and happiness and, and you know, importance. So I'm trying to bring, bring those in. And that really falls on the instructors because teachers and instructors in academia, they know. They've taught, they've learned, they've taken their comps, they've written their articles, but then, okay, what else? How can you really help build a new structure? Not for you, but for the future. Uh, so we have, need to have a little bit of humility and a little, we need to lose a little bit of our uh, self-importance, if you will. And this, with, the, with the recent COVID, I mean, one silver lining that we've had is that we've had this easy culture of, oh yeah, guest lectureship. The, the, that environment became much more fluid. You can kind of, whenever you say, it's like, hey, do you want to come speak in my class? It becomes easier. So with that, we can teach across borders. So how can we do studio work in parallel between here and, say, China or Lebanon or Jordan? How can we create these things? Ready to sit in front of a screen and do co-creation online? I think we can create something that wasn't there before and maybe develop a new sense of post-COVID reality that is actually better than what we had. You need to have more demographically diverse, but if you don't have demographically diverse, you have to get champions, even if you do have the same shades of uh, racial or cultural backgrounds that you always had, even if you have that, it doesn't mean you can't be more diverse in the way you think, or it doesn't mean you can't be a champion for, for opening up. But definitely, when you see examples of people who come from your same culture, your same background, making it, uh, it does mean a lot. I know a lot of people critique the politics of representation, but it still means a lot. Now that you have let us talk, as always, we won't let you talk. Hop over to lettucecd.com and engage in discussion with fellow urban enthusiasts. If you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. 
This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Brett. Special shout out to Ebony Hatchet for music production. And thanks to Letters Group for the executive production. Until next time.